point of this course really was to do some overlapping uh, work with like an introductory course and, and investigate some of those things that are not given as much um, attention in an introductory biblical counseling course. So this, this kind of dovetails with, with that kind of material. And so the things that we've gone through are things that I thought, or I have found anyway, important to me as a counsellor for nearly 30 years. And just in, in my experience, I've thought that they needed a little bit more um, time given to them. And tonight what I want to do is just kind of turn back to some practical stuff and uh, won't be able to go through everything that I wanted to go through, but I do want to deal with some practical materials and then uh, uh, maybe deal with some questions. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray that you would bless us tonight and uh, encourage us and instruct us with your truth and uh, bless those that can't make it. I know Les is, um, his back's hurting and I pray that you would uh, just give him rest and uh, hope that gets sorted out quickly. And we pray, Father in heaven, that you would uh, just be present and be glorified tonight. <clears throat> in Jesus' name, Amen. So we're grateful to God that he has given us this amazing book and uh, the ability to help and counsel people from it. I suppose the first thing that I want to say then tonight is that we must trust the Bible. <laughs> we must trust the Bible. You know, it is, it is sufficient. It is what it claims to be and if we have knowledge of it and we're in it constantly, we will find that it addresses the issues that we need addressing. We'll also find this, and all of you will, will kind of nod your heads at this, that it doesn't matter where we've been reading in the Bible, uh, it seems to match circumstances that we kind of encounter. And again, that shows its divine nature. Uh, it's really, a, that can become a very uncanny thing, can't it? That you're reading about something and then it actually happens, you know, the same day or, or the next day. You're thinking about something in scripture and then you can apply it. Um, so, you know, give your attention to the Bible. Give your attention to the scripture. It is not primarily a book written for you. I mean, for your feelings. Okay? It's truth. That's, it's, that's the way that we approach it. We approach it because it's the truth. And you can't get to the truth if you don't go through the Bible. All right? That's our apologetics and worldview stuff. So it's important that you treat it that way. When you treat it that way, you get to see how it deals with the important questions, the so-called philosophical questions and so on, but it also deals with those practical questions and those two things um, combine to help us uh, avoid simplicity or simplistic remedies to things, uh, but rather help us to see why we should not be proud, why uh, we should have faith in our difficulties and, and encourage people to have faith. Um, why 
we shouldn't trust our hearts and all of the rest of the things that we've been doing, dealing with. So, um, trust the Bible. That's the first thing that I want to say in this kind of summing up period. The next thing that I want to do is I want to talk about um, who can counsel biblically. Who, who can counsel biblically. And obviously somebody who has um, been trained in biblical counseling by biblical counselors and have, re- have read some of the books and so on, they hopefully will be in a better position to counsel biblically, although not everybody, because sometimes the disposition's not there to counsel. What I mean by that is that I've heard stories of people who counseled with the Bible, but they counseled in it in such a way that they didn't treat people as if they were, you know, multi-layered people with um, emotions going different directions and um, you know, they, they, they treated them as though they were kind of cardboard cutouts. And all you need to do is apply this thing and, that we, and, you know, go run away and deal with this or stop doing that and so on. Well, you know, if you're going to do that, then you're not going to counsel biblically with somebody. Uh, for example, if somebody is, is depressed and they're on antidepressants, you don't, you're not, hopefully, you're not foolish enough to say, well, stop taking the antidepressants. <laughs> You know, because uh, and have a go at them because they're not facing reality. But I've heard that. I've heard so-called biblical counselors do that. Not from a lot of them, but from some who claim to be that way. So, who can counsel biblically? Well, not that kind of person, but a person who realizes that they're a fellow sinner, a fellow traveler, somebody who needs to hear this stuff just as much as the person that they're counseling. Uh, somebody who can therefore empathize with people, people who uh, will humble themselves before uh, the Bible, realizing that they're just a vehicle for God's truth. You know, they, uh, when you're a biblical counselor, what your, your, your real job is, is to facilitate a connection between God and the, and the counselee. Yes, you need a connection or what I might even say is a confrontation, (laughs) confrontation between God and the counselee. And you facilitate that. But that's your job. It's nothing. It's not about you um, or anything about your abilities. It's it's about how do you do that? How do you get these people to see God, see what see his requirements, see and trust him? Trust his truth. Do what's necessary uh, in order to do that. Uh, So that kind of a person need not have the training necessarily. They're just maybe somebody who knows the Bible, they believe the Bible, they trust the Bible. They're not people that that say, well, God said to me, God spoke to me. Because that's a person who doesn't think the Bible is sufficient. You know, all kinds of trouble with that. But a person who really believes this is the word of God and knows it well enough to apply its principles to somebody who is in difficulty. That's a person who can counsel biblically. And what's really sad is that there are many people and... uh, Pastors, 
are the worst for this, who think that they're not qualified because they don't have some psychological training or qualification and so on. And so biblical counselling doesn't happen. The Bible is not used the way that it's meant to be used to help people and exhort people and bring them to repentance and and help them to understand themselves and help them to understand change and, and so on. That's never done because for whatever reason, many pastors just don't think that they can do it. Um, That didn't used to be the case, you know. Pastors were the people you would go and see about many of these issues. And uh, they would help you through it. They wouldn't help you through it by trying to get you self-actualized. And they wouldn't help you through it by calling you a victim. And they wouldn't help you through it by um, just sympathizing with you and saying they're there and, and, and uh, not going into the sin issues that may be involved. You know, has that person responded correctly in the way that God would want them to respond? Have they understood the, some of the underlying issues that are going on? Um, so you here are capable of counseling Somebody, you know, not the the hard cases maybe, but but uh, please don't think that oh I can't do this. Honestly, many of the best biblical counselors in their books and uh, in some correspondence that I've had with them have said that they would far rather somebody with an open Bible who believes the Bible counsel a Christian than one of these Christian psychologists. And I understand why, you know. I mean, that, that brings down all kinds of criticisms and brickbats from good people who trust psychological Christian counselling. I don't trust it at all. It's mixing oil and water. And, and the thing is that, that um, to, to bend the metaphor, the water of the word gets swamped with the oil of um, psychology, secular psychology, And it doesn't work because the word cannot inhabit the space that it's given by psychology. Uh, They just compete against one another. Okay? And the psychological terms and labeling and so on, not all the time, but a lot of the time, that's unhelpful. Um, Doesn't mean that psychologists don't have some good insights because obviously they deal with a lot of people and they see things and they, they especially with behaviours uh, and so on, they may have some insights. But as far as the diagnosis of the problem is concerned, that's where the trouble comes. That's where the conflict with scripture comes. And uh, it can be very damaging to uh, somebody who's trying to, to, to help a Christian with the book of God. <laughs> with the book that's supposed to be their final authority, with the book that's supposed to to help them spiritually and mentally. Um, you run into all kinds of problems that way. Uh, so yes, you can counsel biblically. Don't, don't think that if somebody comes to you that you can't open the Bible and show them some things. You may not be able to go very deep, but you know what? 
as you do it, you will find that the Holy Spirit will bring scriptures to your mind, okay? And as you turn a person to the, to the Word of God, uh, just get, do a little exposition of that passage that you're turning to, and then you'll grow and they'll grow. Yes? We'll try to do a little bit of that tonight. Uh, that's why this is not a waste of time for you. That's why this will be very useful for you if you allow God to use you. You will find that you can use the materials that I've, I've given you and they will really help you. Okay. Next, I wanted to talk about uh, three stages of Counseling, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I was going to go a little bit through this book by Jay Adams, Critical Stages of Biblical Counseling, which is quite a useful book. But I'm not going to do that. The three stages are uh, beginning, the first, the first interview. Okay, the first interview. And that's what I want to say a little bit about uh, in a minute. Then the interview where you, you seem to break through. The interview that, that, that the pretense has gone, that they maybe understand things they didn't understand about themselves before, that they see things more clearly, and they are making concerted efforts with God to, to address the issues. They're starting, in fact, not only to heed what you're saying and what the Word is saying, they're starting to see themselves how uh, scripture applies to their issues and they're taking the initiative to help themselves. You see? So I was going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about that tonight. I don't have time. And then uh, the, the, how, how do you finish off? How do you close off? I don't want to say too much about that anyway. I would just say that, that it's been my experience that you kind of know. You kind of know when, you know, you've, you've said what you needed to say. Um, when you see them, the counselee, having a, mar- a marked improvement, not only in their level of satisfaction and their dealing with the problem, but in their outlook, in the way that they are, are with God, in their spiritual life. You know, you see a big change there and, and you can't keep them in biblical counselling all the time. And in fact, you don't want to do that. Uh, you, you see that they are taking charge of their spiritual lives. And they, you can always say, yeah, if ever you want to come and see me or talk to me, then uh, you know where I am, you know. Just give me a call, just a phone call away. And uh, we can deal with that. But, it's, but generally... People know when the, the last interview is going to be, okay? But what about beginning? <laughs> beginning is, is really the crucial thing. And uh, yes, the first interview is crucial, but I would say the first, um, the first two or three, I would throw the first two or three in there because uh, in, in those, what you're trying to do is you're trying to set up several things. You're trying to set up, first of all, an atmosphere. 
you know, the right atmosphere so that they come into the counselling session with the right kind of orientation. Uh, they uh, come knowing that, that this is the level of seriousness, for example, that we take sin seriously here. Uh, they come in not expecting a pragmatic solution. That's what the world gives. But the Bible is not about pragmatics. Pragmatism is the bane of the church. I hate pragmatism. And it's all over the place. Um, you know what pragmatism is? Pragmatism is about if it works, it must be right. Okay? That is not biblical. And yet it's all over, you know? And you see it in things like, well, if we have loads of people in the church, then we must be doing God's work. No! What about the church in Laodicea? You know, that's not necessarily the, the case. In fact, often it's a symptom of it not being the case because there's something wrong, you know, especially if um, the level of spiritual growth and the preaching that's there is not impacting, not convicting people. Then you'll find that the level is, you know, people are coming along to get a dose of feel good. For the week, okay? Church is a good place, you know, many churches are a good place to get a, a dose of feel good. Where else do you go? Um, so you can, you've got to watch for that. Uh, so there's a couple of things that, that Adam says that I want to point out to you as far as the first meeting and the first few meetings are concerned. The first thing that I think it's, it's interesting to, to point to is the fact that we need to make sure who's in charge. <laughs> is the counsellor the person that, that the counsellee is coming to? Are they in charge or are the counsellee in charge? Uh, the counsellor is the one in charge. The counsellor is the one in charge. He's the one that sets the agenda. He's the one that gives the homework. He's the one that um, must conduct the interview in the way that, you know, he wants that interview or she wants that interview to go. All right? Now, that doesn't mean that you're a control freak about the interview. In fact, that's really a bad idea. It's a good idea to, to give some looseness, some lassitude in there because um, when there's a bit of looseness in there and people are free to talk, you know, they will often tell you things or, or say things that a quick answer will not give you. And you'll be able to make links that you wouldn't be able to, to, to make if you just had a quick answer to every question that you asked. Just let them talk. You know, especially at the beginning, just let him talk. But, but guide the conversation. Okay? And I'll come back to that in a minute. But you're in charge. Some people will come in, and I've had this, and they will want to control the counseling situation. Sometimes that's because they just want to help out, you know, and they just want to give you a bunch of information. Um, but you've got to, if, if you have someone like that who just wants to spill their guts, as it were, uh, you've got to, to make sure that there's an order and there's a logical kind of progression in thought. Otherwise, you'll, you know, you just won't get 
the stuff because you won't see any connections because they're not making any themselves. You've got to have some questions that make connections for them and keep them going down basically um, the line that you want to them to go down. Um, but you'll also have people who just are used to talking and used to, to directing a conversation. There are people like that. A lot of guys, not by any means all guys, not the majority of guys, but, but guys can be like that, particularly if they feel um, that they're in a situation like a counselling situation and they feel the loss of, of control or the loss of... Um, you know, maybe self-respect or whatever it might be. They might talk a lot and, and they might di- try to direct w- what that conversation's about. Okay? That might be okay if it fits in with what you want to do um, for the first one or two conversations. But uh, if you... if you have somebody like that, or ladies, if you have a lady like that, because you won't counsel men, <clears throat> if you have a, a, a lady like that, you've got to recognise it. As soon as you recognise it, it's got to be uppermost in your mind to make sure they know who's boss. They know, they've got to know that they're taking up your time you're willing to help them, but you're only willing to help them if um, they want your help. In order to have your help, you are the one who has to be in charge. Do you see? Um, as I've said, the ladies counsel ladies. Men, ideally you counsel men, but if you're counseling a lady, then what do you do? You make sure that you have preferably a woman, but somebody else, another witness who can see both parties, um, you know, as witnesses all the time in those, in those situations. So if I, in, in my office, the way that the office at Agape is set up, it's kind of awkward, but I have, always have the door open and I have Daryl uh, sit. He's kind of our administrator and someone who's uh, our... Uh, the guy we all rely on. And I always have him sit in a place where he can see and where he can hear what, what I'm saying, at least what I'm saying. Um, so that's very important with, with ladies, with men and ladies, okay? Ideally, um, you know, it, it's good if you have your wife in there with you. So that's the best thing. All right, so yes, you're in charge. That's the first thing. Second thing is that you give hope. You give hope, okay? It is most important that you give hope. And that means in every, uh, every encounter, there is something that you can say, even though they may be, I mean, a bit of a mess, and you're trying to kind of figure out, oh my goodness, you know, this sounds terrible. How am, we, how am I going to deal with this? You still give them hope. Why do you do that? You do it for two reasons. First of all, because there is hope. Not in you. 
not in you, okay? <laughs> like I'm the person, I'm going to be the person that sorts you out here. No, you can help them by repairing to what God's given to you. Do you see? But God, in his word and by his spirit, is the one who can help. And he can help. Even though you enter the fray, as it were, and sometimes you're listening to this stuff and you think, I know there's more to it, but this sounds really bad. And I don't even know what to say to the person, hardly. But that's okay. Just keep listening and praying and you will find that God will bring things to your mind and as you're studying, things will uh, pop up and which will be applicable to that person. Okay? But this book, the Bible, is extraordinary in its ability to untangle people's messes. Okay? It really is. So there is hope, and there really is hope. Uh, I think I, I've already said this. Uh, I'm one of these guys that, because I talk so much, uh, as far yeah, I'm, always, I'm talking to people as a pastor, and then I've got different studies and different things that I'm doing, so I can't remember sometimes what I say to different groups of people. So did I talk about people's problems being like spaghetti? Spaghetti. There we are. Have I said that? All right, well, I'll say it again. So, remember the old TVs. The old TVs, okay, if they went wrong, you look round the back and you had this great mass of cables, you know, intertwined and everything, and just looked like a big bunch of spaghetti at the back there. Um, and, you know, you have to track the right piece and make sure that, it, that it's plugged in and, and it's plugged in both ends and so on and so forth, yes? And it's a good idea to unravel it from all of the, you know, the mess while you're doing it so the cables are in some kind of uh, uh, logical uh, and sensible order. And the same thing, it's the same thing when um, you, you've got spaghetti, you know, if you cut it and so on and you uh, use your fork right, you can make uh, some order out of the mess, yes? If you just dig in, then you're just going to have a huge plate full of, or half a plate full of spaghetti on your fork, and you're going to get it all over your clothes. Uh, if you pick it, as it were, you pick the mess out, um, you will find that you can make sense of what seems to be a big pile of spaghetti as far as the person's problems are concerned. And honestly, um, even though a person may seem to have 10 or 20 huge problems that are pressing down on them, and you're, they're telling you, and, and it's like you, they're saying that, that, well, I have this issue with their, um, with their spouse, you know, and he's angry, or something like that. And then she's on some kind of, I don't know, blood thinner or, or something that has this side effect. And then she had this in her childhood and then she has a job that's a high pressure job. Yes? 
and she's not getting on with somebody at work. And, and you know how it goes. You've got several problems uh, that you deal with, and then there's you know, other things too that you, that you spot. And it's like, well, how am I going to deal with all these diffuse issues? And at first it looks to be overwhelming and, and not really connected. And yet you will find that these problems, most of them um, are, as it were, they're created by two or three, maybe even one main problem. So if you get to like one, two or three, it's usually not more than three, uh, of the, the main problems, the other problems will sort themselves out. Yeah, but you've got to get through the spaghetti. You've got to sort the spaghetti out, you see, or the cables, uh, so that you can understand them and trace them back to what really is the, is the main problem. Did I, is that a right illustration? I kind of mix my metaphors there a bit. But, um, but that's really important for us to understand, okay? Uh, don't be... Um, confounded or overwhelmed because you talk to somebody and you seem to have so many problems and you wonder how you're going to help them. Listen, listen, listen. That's what I'm going to come to in a minute. Listen, listen, listen and you will find out eventually the one or two major issues and those are the ones you go for. Okay? Those are the ones that you go for. And as you deal with those, then um, these others often sort themselves out, okay? Or they become less difficult for them to deal with, less overwhelming. Sometimes the, the pressure that's at, at work is just because this person is not sleeping enough, do you see? Or they're not, um, you know, because their home life is not that great, it's transferring over to their work life or whatever. So they get one thing sorted out, maybe their thought life sorted out, and they're not as as tense as they were. In fact, they're not tense at all. Um, I'm terrible when I'm tired. Okay? And I've been tired recently. So I had to I had to um, confess because as the Lord had it, and some of you guys know, as the Lord had it, I was preaching on the humility of Christ and the mind of Christ and let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And um, so yesterday I didn't have a good day as far as humility was concerned. I wasn't very humble at all yesterday. Um, and when I'm tired, you know, I can I can get like that, okay? And sometimes people... They allow themselves to be tired and then they're tired for a week and they're tired for a month and they get used to being tired all the time. And and that changes their personality and it changes the way they deal with people and changes the way they deal with things and then changes the way they see things and see themselves. And uh, that has its own problems, you see? Because it creates its own problems, the way that you interact with people, or the way that you're short with people, or the, uh, the way that you think about yourself, or whatever. You know, but, but it all co- it's all caused, in that instance, by one thing. Lack of sleep. You see? So often, you've just got to trace these things back, and don't be overwhelmed by, um, by the, what appears to be so many problems. Um, also on this, realize that people 
can often deal with a great deal. They can put up with a great deal. Okay? So you're not, you don't have to fix every single problem in their life. They can put up with stuff. You know? They can put up with some pain or they can put up with a grouchy husband or wife or, you know, a, a, a kid that's, that's going off the rails or, you know, they can, they can put up with some of this. It's not pleasant, but hey, that's life. But you don't have to fix every single problem. You have to deal with the thing that's stopping them dealing with the problems of life. Do you see? Because the problems of life are always there. All right, the next thing that I want to uh, talk about is... Uh, is uh, oh, I, I talk about hope. See, you see, I'm tired because uh, I was drifting away from my main point, which was hope. There's always hope. There's always hope. That was the main thing. Um, next thing. Remember that Romans 14.23 says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That's very important because you're not just trying to, to give them something that works. You're trying to give them something for their faith to, uh, to work on, to believe, to trust, and therefore for them to grow by. Yeah, it's, it's always a faith issue. Right? Then also, as Christians, and I'm talking about Christians here, what is, what is, is, is the most important thing in our lives? What should be the most important thing in our lives? It isn't, if we're honest, but what should be? Yes. <laughs> All right. Now, as Christians, okay, as, we're already saved. So, yeah. But, but God and uh, his glory should be the, the, the main thing. Now, now, the word glory has this idea of putting weight on something, okay? Having a weight. So, how much weight does God have in your life? Okay, that's how to kind of measure whether you're interested in giving God the glory or not. So God's glory should be the uppermost thing. And of course, we like to say that it is. And sometimes, maybe quite a lot of the time, and I hope a lot of the time, we are interested in giving God the glory. We may not feel, because the emotions, you know, that the heart's contrary and so so we may not feel uh, in the sense of... of, uh, uh, just, just giving God glory with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. But if we're interested in God's glory, we will be inclined to um, to do what He says, even though we don't feel like doing it. Doesn't that give Him glory? To trust him even though we don't feel like trusting him. Um, to, to, as it were, expose ourselves and our vulnerabilities to him, to put ourselves into his hands 
and the problem that's before us into his hands without trying for a quick worldly solution. That gives God glory. Trusting in his word, reading his word, uh, being interested in the truth of his word, that gives God glory. Um, But, sometimes, this is not number one on the list. There are other things that come on the list. What kinds of other things may we have as a an agenda item <laughs> for our, our lives and our aspirations? Can you give us... What's that? Well, maybe our own... Let's, can I put... Yeah, I mean, it, our glory, but, but uh, I'm just going to put it like popularity. Popularity, you know, maybe at church. Okay. Uh, here's one. Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. Korea. And various others, okay? And these things can bump God down the list pretty quickly. Now, again, a word about um, psycho- psychology. If we're a victim, okay, or if we have been told that we are not being actualized or satisfied in a certain way, um, and it's all and it's about that, and our problems will go away if only that th- that need, supposed felt need, was satisfied. If our self-esteem is what it's all about, you know, then those things quickly knock God off. The top of the list, <laughs> you know. How can uh, seeing yourself as a victim? How can that knock God off the top of the the list for a Christian? We live in a society of victims, don't we? So, how how can that do it? We become focused on ourselves, and we become also uh, what's the other thing that the, the victimhood does? The, exactly. You don't have to be accountable, do you see? Because you're the victim. If you're not accountable, then you don't have to listen to what God says about it. Do you? You just need help from outside, you know? So here on page um, 43, Adams uh, says this. He gives an example. He says it's important in any, uh, at any time to honour God in one's attitudes and actions. Negotiating and or adjusting agendas is an important matter. You may discover that your agenda, which is hopefully the same as God's, and that of your counsellee are far apart. Your agenda as a counsellor or as a Christian and the person who comes to you for help, the agendas may be far apart. I spoke to a Christian school administrator who was telling me about the goals that teachers and students had in mind for their education. They gave a stack of ten items to both students and teachers and asked them to pile them up in the order of importance. They included such things as glorifying God, getting a good job upon graduation, making a large salary, serving others and the like. 
It was revealing that while the majority of the students put such things as a large salary and a good job at the top of the list, while placing glorifying God at the bottom, the teachers reversed the items in the pile. That study of agendas made it clear that it would take some work to negotiate and adjust the objectives of the students in that system. Otherwise, teacher and student would be shooting past one another. The same is true in counselling. And he says it's always, it is always the counsellor's agenda that must match God's agenda. Okay? But in this first interview, you may, you know, have to do some work into trying, when you're listening to them, trying to figure out what's their agenda. Because for many people that come and see you, maybe up to 50% or more of people, they just want you to fix their problem. Okay? Which, if it's another person, they want you to fix the other person. And if they get a whiff of the fact that you're going to deal with them and they're part of the problem, some of these people, you won't see them again. And they may even go away and say, well, that person couldn't help me. Um, So right up front, what I say to people is, I say this is biblical counselling. I'm a biblical counsellor. I counsel from the Bible. I believe that it's sufficient uh, to deal with all of our issues, we need to listen to it, we need to heed it. And um, quite honestly, the idea of biblical counselling is bringing you and God together. When we do that, we're definitely on the right track, are we not? Okay. But that's not always easy, because people have pasts and they have ways of behaving. Uh, they have... Um, things that they've learned, even beliefs that they've um, they've held on to and clung on to. Maybe they've got them from the church sometimes, which are just false and they're just wrong. Um, so I wrote this up here because I use this quite a lot. It says, "You are who you have been becoming." which sounds kind of weird. It doesn't sound like good English, but I like it. I like its awkwardness because it forces us to think. Okay? You are who you have been becoming. In other words, you just didn't come here today, the person that you are, you didn't arrive as that person today. Okay? You were that person yesterday as well and the day before. And if you go all the way back, okay, some of the things that you do now and some of the thoughts that you think now, uh, they are an accrual of a certain direction that you took back when. Maybe they're an accrual of uh, bitter feelings towards people, maybe family or whatever. Maybe... Uh, some experience, a, a, a nasty marriage or a nasty divorce or um, kids that, that hurt you by showing a lack of respect or um, they don't, you know, lack of appreciation or whatever. Maybe um, there's some suffering that you've been through 
and uh, that left you disappointed or disenchanted with life. Uh, maybe you lost your job. And, you know, for a guy, that's a big, a really big deal. You know, it's like losing half of yourself. And so, um, you just, you're just not the man you used to be, you know, or you've done that several times and you feel that, you know, I'm just not up to much. Um, the sense of failure or whatever, whatever it might be. Hanging around the wrong people for, for far too long in your, in your life. And you've, you've inculcated their behaviours and their thought patterns and their ways of communication and so on. You haven't broken away from that. Yes? Those, those kind of things. But you are who you've been becoming. So after realising that and explaining that to people, then the next thing is to talk to them. And this is usually at the first session. I don't do it all the time. But usually at the first session, I will spring this on people and I will, um, I will say... You need to understand that the person that you've been becoming and the decisions that have made you become the person that you are with the emotions that you have and the feelings that you have and the outlook that you have, uh, these very well not may not line up with uh, Christian growth and conformity with Christ. <laughs> And of course, people would agree with that. Of course, who wouldn't agree with that? But what it does, it's straight away, it illustrates to them that there are things that they've got to change. There are ways of thinking, ways of behaving, habits and so on, that need to change. It, it, it kind of shows them, oh, okay, uh, it's not a quick fix here that this guy's about. This guy's about changing behavior, changing thinking, changing outlook, changing, um, you know, maybe friends and circumstances sometimes. And also, he's about bringing me into conformity with Jesus Christ. And that, that, those are two kind of easy things that you can call people back to during the process of counselling, but it, I often will point that out to people in the first meeting because what it does is it sets the atmosphere and it also sets an agenda going forward, do you see? I find it very helpful. Not saying that you have to do that, but, but that's an illustration of the kind of thing that you can do uh, so that people know what to expect. Um, often, well, no, not that often, but sometimes. Sometimes um, you might wait to do this because you're, not, you're just not sure yet that a person has had time or opportunity or that, that, uh, that they haven't expressed themselves completely to you in the way that even satisfies them so that you're not, you're not getting good answers to your questions or anything like that. Yeah, So you might want to wait until... Uh, maybe the next meeting where they're in a better, more calmer frame of mind and treat that really as the first one. Yeah? He says something here that I want to... Uh, 
draw our attention to. He talks about different kinds of counselees, and I'll, I'll uh, deal with that. Uh, where is it? Well, I've lost it, so I'm going <laughs> to just go to some of the different kinds of counselees. This is a helpful list. Okay, you will meet. People who come in and they're whiners and they grumble. So you might want to take that person, if, you, if they're whining and complaining too much, uh, you might want to take them to Philippians chapter 2, I think it's verse 14, it says, Wherefore do all things without murmurings and disputings. I say, all I'm hearing from you is that you're, you're grumbling, you're complaining, you've, you've got a critical spirit, okay? I want to hear your issues, but I don't want to hear you whine about it. Okay, because that also shows what? A discontented heart. It shows that you're putting yourself first and so on. And so these things, obviously, most people will recognize that that's not right. So whiners, grumblers. Secondly, angry people. It can be off-putting dealing with an angry person. You, you uh, think, well, if I ask the wrong question, you know, <laughs> they're going to fly into a rage in front of me. Um, so you've got to go carefully sometimes with that, but, but then you also call them on their anger. And, uh, you know, maybe Proverbs 29, 11 says that you know, if you're an angry person, you're a fool. An angry person is a fool. And then it maybe explain why. You understand why that is the case, because when, we angry, when we're angry, we say things that we wouldn't normally say. And we say things that we regret I mean, we might mean them when we say them because we are not ourselves. Yes? But then we really regret them and don't mean them when we're back to the people that we want to be. Um, so, point out the, the foolishness and, uh, of that and say, look, we, we're about wisdom here. <laughs> we, we want you to have the fear of God that brings wisdom and uh, so let's be wise and let's make sure that we, um, we don't let our anger get the best of us. Depressed people. Okay, depressed people. Um, Adam says that the catch word of a depressed person is can't. <laughs> can't. I can't do this. Okay. Um, maybe, um, I don't know, um, that wasn't what I thought really, but I, I do think that, that a depressed person doesn't have the inclination to do something. They're just, it's just hard work. Doing anything positive is hard work. Putting a smile on their face is hard work. Um, it just takes effort. Okay? Sometimes, you may not believe this, but sometimes it takes you know, really digging deep into your resources to uh, put a smile on your face or to, to engage somebody in conversation. Okay? Maybe a bit of courage too. Um, and I want to come back to that because that has to do with, with 
a perceived gap between uh, what seems to us to be the case and what actually is. Okay? What seems to us to be the case and what actually is. So remember that if I go swan and off on my ideas because it's, it's important that we, uh, we ourselves understand that. Fearful people. They're fearful. You've got to get them to trust God. There's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. He that loves uh, understands that. That's First uh, John 4.18. Okay? Tell them that, that, that. Grieving people. First Thessalonians 4.13. We don't grieve as others grieve. Grieving is okay. Grieving has its it's course that it has to go through, okay, but if there's over much grief and it's taking control of their lives like a year down the road and so on, it's time to, time to deal with it because that, that's not right. There can be times of sadness and that's perfectly fine, perfectly okay, perfectly natural. But if it's taking over their lives, that's not what God's will is, especially not for a Christian who's Christian spouse is, is with the Lord. <laughs> yes. Um, here's an important one. Guilty people. People who feel guilty. Um, there is a lot of guilt. A lot of guilt. And uh, this is where, again, psychology is ugh, terrible at this because they, they tend to make guilty people into the victims. And sometimes a person, they may be a victim, but they may be guilty too. Do you see? And that guilt, they need to feel it. They need to feel the guilt. They need to own up to the guilt. They need to repent of the thing that's making them feel guilty. Yes, I understand there are people of weak consciences that feel guilty with something they haven't done. You can talk through that and you can identify that and you can give them the relief. No, Jesus has taken that. Or that, you know, weren't guilty for that. There was no, nothing wrong with that, you know. You can help them to see that. But you've got to pursue it. Now, um, that is a, uh, that, that is against the way that the world sees guilt. They think guilt is, is a completely negative thing and we need to avoid it. And we need to, kind of not own up to it because it's wholly negative emotion. It's not. Guilt very often is there in a person because they've done something or thought something wrong. Okay. In fact, I would say guilt is something really to listen out for, especially if things don't make sense. If things don't make sense in the story they're telling you, or if some of their actions or some of their thinking seems to be odd, often, not always, but often guilt is behind that. Because they have perfected ways, well not perfected, but they've, they've introduced ways of thinking and behaving and relating to things to get past this great big elephant in the room that's guilt, their guilt. And so that they don't see it anymore. But you see it. You see there's something odd about the way that they're talking or the way they're behaving. Or, um, there are different manifestations of this and, and uh, uh, we all 
do different things. Some people, for example, uh, they have nervous habits that, that they have, you know, that twitching or um, the way that they use their hands. Look at person's hands, by the way, um, when you're counseling them. Um, ways of re- phrases that they repeat over and over again and so on. And just mark that because sometimes it's their, their mind going into overdrive trying to not get to the problem, <laughs> trying to avoid it. There are some people that will just shut you down. Okay, if you get too close, oh, that's not a problem at all. Okay, whenever you have that response, there's the problem right there. Okay, you're close. You don't, might not know what it is, okay? I mean, no, no, you've got to listen and, and take care, but you're pretty close to something there. Okay, when you get that kind of, of response. No, that's not a problem. Uh, people that get angry at you. People that get angry at you when you're, you're asking questions. And uh, they will often, especially nowadays, they will, they will start to, why are you being so mean? Why be, I come to you for help and you're being so mean to me. That's where you have to lovingly tell them that, look, this is, this is about God's will. This is about truth. This, I'm not out to hurt you, but we are here about truth. And we need to get to the truth. And if we, a wise person uh, listens and loves the person that rebukes them, if rebuke is necessary. But, but getting to the issue, okay? A wise person will do that. You can show them in Proverbs where it says that. <clears throat> so the guilty person, very Im- important that we, uh, we park <laughs> there on guilt. Don't avoid it. He says this, the psychologists have avoided dealing with true guilt in favour of other constructions. Uh, guilt feelings, for example, uh, or false guilt. He says, there is no false guilt. Guilt is real. I don't know if I would go so far as to say that. Adams is sometimes um, too dogmatic. But, but definitely, guilt is real. I would agree with that. When one is concerned that he may have committed a guilty act, which in fact is not sinful, he is guilty Truly so, for having acted as he did when he thought, even if he thought wrongly, that what he was doing was sin. And I would agree with that. If a person is, they may not need to be guilty, feel guilty for it, but if they do feel guilty, what he's saying is, then he's guilty. He's taking serious, he takes that guilt seriously, and it's a powerful emotion that's affecting them. Has to be dealt with. Has to be dealt with. If you don't deal with it, then you don't deal with the problem. And guilt can be something that festers in a person. It can make a person bitter and cranky and, uh, and impatient. It can make a person, uh, move a person from uh, being a, a godly, trusting person into an unbeliever. Yeah? You, so it has, to be, it has to be dealt with. Guilt can, can, it doesn't always, but guilt is often at the, at the bottom of a lot of addictions because it's an avoidance thing around a problem. 
So you have to, it has to be something that is faced, that is, um, is dealt with and is repented of. Uh, if you go to Proverbs 28.13, Proverbs 28.13, That's a great passage to, to remember in circumstances like this. this. Proverbs is a place for a counsellor. You've got to spend a lot of time there. Okay. It's, it's really, really, really helpful. And it's a good place to, to send people that come to you for help as well. Um, what did I say the passage was? 28.13. Okay. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Okay? And we do like to cover our sins. Okay? Uh, we, we also cover our sins by admitting to them. Superficially. Now, oh, yeah, I have an anger problem. Yeah, I get angry sometimes, or I have this problem, or I have a lust problem, or I have a, uh, I'm avaricious, or, yeah, I have that issue. Or I drink too much sometimes, or, you know, so it's like, well, we've said it, we've said it, so, you know, we don't need to deal with it anymore then, do we? So, so people use these things, okay, to, to avoid them. <laughs> Just a little bit more on, on this. Uh, if you, we try to deny guilt, it's actually, we are not only not helping the person, we are ourselves um, not loving the person. We're not loving the person. If we, if we see that the person is, for example, they have un- unforgiveness in their life against somebody and they have a health problem, okay, sometimes their health problem is because they have this unforgiveness in their lives, okay? They're not at peace. There's psychosomatic thing going on, okay? In fact, in, in uh, the Journal of pra- uh, Pastoral Practice, um, I don't think they have this anymore. There's a little article here called Psychosomatics in the Bible by uh, Dr. Bob Smith. And uh, he gives some of these instances. You might be interested in them in Scripture. A loss of appetite due to anger and self-pity. First Samuel chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. <laughs> he gives all these instances. Uh, I can give you these later if you want. A loss of appetite due to fear. First Samuel 28, 20 and 23. Um, a loss of appetite due to envy. 1 Kings 21, 4 and 5. A loss of appetite due to worry and fear. Psalm 102, verse 4. Weight loss due to worry. Psalm 102, verse 5. Insomnia due to worry. Ecclesiastes 5, 12. Daniel 6, 18. Trembling or muscles twitching due to fear. Daniel 5, 6. Mark 5, 33. Um... General bad feeling due to frustration and lust. Second <laughs> Samuel 13, 2. Uh, that's an odd way of putting it, but, but, uh, you know, if, if sin has, you know, sometimes sin comes upon us very powerfully, yes? 
and it kind of pounces upon us and it, 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 it has, it's like it, it, it has real power and we feel like almost controlled by it sometimes. Um, and we resist it and we try and resist it and resist it but then we're still kind of pandering and thinking about it and, and so on and we're still aware of its presence um, and it's, we start to feel down or we, you know, we start to, it knocks us off our stride and people can see that there's something up but we say, no, we're okay, you know, because outwardly everything's okay, but inwardly we maybe have battling with this sin problem or dallying with it, which is kind of the same thing. Uh, the following symptoms are the result of guilt. So listen to these. Feeling of weakness. Psalm 31, verse 10. Do you want to look at some of these? Let's go to Psalms, because most of these are actually in Psalms. This? Oh, cool. So Psalm 31, verse 10. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. He's feeling guilty. Okay, he knows he's sinned and it's having this effect. Uh, we have similar things in, in uh, the Psalms as well. Uh, restlessness, Psalm 32.3. When I kept silence, my bones grew old <laughs> through my groaning all the day long. Uh, Psalm 38.3, just look at that one. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. Feeling of pressure or weight. Psalm 32, verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So, you know, if you suppress guilt like this, it may start off like this, but you, you, we learn ways, skills to deal with it. Now, what we should do is we should confess it to God. We should repent of it. But a lot of us don't. We, and we bury it and we try and silence it and we become adept at not hearing it. We become, become like people who uh, live next door to you know, maybe in a, a condominium and the next person or the next people are, are they're always at each other's throats, you know, the couple are, are always shouting at each other and, and the person just comes, becomes used to it or used to the sirens or whatever outside and they don't hear them anymore, yeah? And we're kind of like that with sins that we've committed and we know that we're we're guilty of it. Sometimes we might be absolutely, utterly ashamed so that we don't want to tell people because we're so embarrassed about it. But we've got to deal with it. We've got to deal with it. Uh, dry mouth. <laughs> Psalm 32.4. Uh, increased heart rate, pounding or palpitations of the heart. Uh, Psalm 38 again and verse 8. 
I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Hyperventilation. Psalm 31, verse 10. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Um, itching skin. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 27. And, um, you know, in a, in a, in, in my case, I sometimes had twitching because of my depression. It sometimes brought along uh, about twitching because, I, I, I think it was because my, my, my muscles were so taut because to, um, to just be kind of um, to, to spill all of that energy trying to control yourself so the, the, the outside world doesn't see takes a great deal of, of, of strength, you see, and it saps you. And I'm sure that it was, it was just my body saying, yeah, I've had enough of this, and responding. And my hands would feel almost numb many times. Many times. My hands, hands would feel numb. Very weird sensation. I'd have tingling and, and so on in my hands. And again, it's because of, of the effect of this emotion on my body. Yes? Um, some people grieving, you know, they, they have times where they have uh, euphoria. <laughs> and you think, they think, oh, you know, this is this is odd. This is strange, but it's just because of the just the roller coaster of the emotions that's going on at that particular time. Uh, the proud, proud people. That's uh, often goes along with guilt. So. All of these people you're going to have, and others too, people with this, this bizarre ways of, of, of acting, you know. Uh, maybe they can't sit still. Um, maybe they, they raise their voice, and there's nothing wrong with their hearing, but they, they raise their voice all the time, and, and, and so on. It's just odd ways of, of acting. Don't try to uh, turn old Sigmund Freud on them and try and figure out, you know, there must be... But just notice these things, because sometimes these are things, these are behaviours that somebody has has, uh, brought onto themselves, sometimes to punish themselves for the guilt that they feel. Really, some people... um, Some people... For example, they view porn. They know they shouldn't view porn. And so they, to punish themselves for doing that, they um, will, well, one guy I read about, he wouldn't turn left. <laughs> he wouldn't turn left. He'd go right. He wouldn't turn left. That's bizarre behaviour. But the problem wasn't anything to do with it not liking, you know, the left orientation. It, it was the fact that he had the problem with porn. You see, punishing himself. So, so people do things like that. Okay. All right. 
Any questions so far? All right. Yes. 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 Good. Anything else? All right. There's one very, very, very simple thing that is absolutely necessary if you're going to counsel or help anybody. Okay? It's an indisputable skill. And it starts with the word L. It means, yes, listen. You must listen. But you, miss, you listen carefully. Jesus said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the, just <laughs> think about this. The people he said that to heard his words. But did they listen to his words? Did they use the ears that God gave them, which are ways of getting noise through here and some, it was some amazing way through electronic signals getting them to the understanding to the brain, okay? Are they using the ears for what God gave them for, you know? When we're, um, I, when we're, we're hiking, we, you know, we're going through um, Shakota Trail or, or somewhere like that, or the Redwoods or somewhere else at the ocean, and we see people on the beach or, or on these beautiful, in these beautiful uh, woods or, or whatever, and they're on the cell phone. And it's like, are you listening? Are you listening to the roaring waves? Are you listening to the babbling brook? Are you listening to the birds in the trees just above you, you know? Are you listening? Are you using your ears? Because people don't listen to stuff. People don't look at stuff. And we, we all know our kids, you know, we're driving a, a, along, we see this incredible sunset, and we say, hey kids, have a look out of this window. Because it's a beautiful sunset. And we understand kids can be like that. Although, again, when they look, sometimes they can be really enthralled by it. But as Christians, as, as adults, as people trying to mature and be like Christ, we should be people that listen. Okay? And, and watch. And in a fallen world, where we're called upon to serve and bear one another's burdens and to glorify God. And this is a, this is a, a thing, it comes to us. We can do it, okay? This is something we can do for the Lord, isn't it? Um, somebody comes to us and they've got a problem. We can listen. We can listen. You know, sometimes if you just listen, 
that will go a long way towards dealing with their problem. They just wanted somebody to talk, to listen to them. Okay? But in counselling, it's most important that we, we listen. We listen to what people say. Listen to what they say. Not to what you think they say, they're saying. Not the meaning that you think they've got there. But we'll listen to what they say. Alright? Listen to the words that they use. Yes, they may not be able to, and they'll very often tell you, you know, I can't describe it exactly, or maybe I didn't make sense of everything. But often people are more articulate than they think, particularly when they're in problems and they start talking about it. They often can describe pretty well what the issues are, all right? But listen to what they say. The reason that you've got to listen to what they say is, first of all, it stops you from... from um, trying to complete their sentences for them and it, it stops you trying to go to a diagnosis too quickly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know what you, you mean there. All right. Uh, you don't want to do that. You just want to be kind of open and listen to, to what the words are being used. See how they're using the words as well. See, listen particularly for... Um, for um, particular words that they use when they're trying to um, describe emotions or, or when they're speaking about someone. Okay? Are there, are there, is there bitterness there, for example? Are there words kind of really negative when, when they're touching on one area of one person? Um, when you talk about something else, do their words, are they more positive and kind of more joy-filled? Um, speak about their parents. Okay, often it's important to know a little bit about the background of a person because of, of this. Um, so, talk to them about their, their parents. Uh, in one encounter that I had, one, one um, count conversation, this was about the sixth conversation. This was a person um, that um, they were, um, her and her husband were separated because she thought there were spirits in things, inanimate objects. And just drove her husband nuts, you know. Kind of bizarre, yes? And um, she was um, a nice person and a, a believer and so on. And this person, um, it ended up that we, we started talking about the, the parents, the mum and the dad. And so I, in listening to her, I started to see that she would talk more about a dad than a mum. Not that she would be negative about a mum, but just talk more about a dad than a mum. So I 
asked her about a mum. Okay. Um, how was the marriage? Okay. Well, she admitted that uh, the mother had a an affair years ago, years back. But then they got reunited and so on. Now, straight away, as a Christian counsellor, one of the things that I'm thinking is, did, did the mother ever confess that she did wrong? Did she ever repent? Because if she didn't repent, then there's sin there in a mother's life that's going to affect the kids. Okay? Um... I said, well, who was it? It was a person that was lived not far away from them. And um, that, I thought that was kind of odd. Did you ever, did you know this person? Yes, we would go around the house sometimes. And then in, in the conversation, it, it turned up that she found a book in this guy's house of photographs and not just of adult women but of kids too okay she wasn't sure her, it was her and her two brothers were taken round this house by the mother during this time okay and left while they went upstairs and Neither, neither her or her two brothers, one of them had passed. Both, the other brother was messed up. They always had this feeling that not only had they seen this stuff and it was wrong and so on, but that this guy also had interfered with them. Do you see? And with a little more conversation and just kind of gently talking about it and so on, um, talking about the brother and so on, I said, it's, I, I don't want to, I said, I'm not calling you a victim here. You know, obviously, this something awful has happened, but um, certainly, this, I don't want this to define you, so I don't, I'm not going to, I don't want you to think in terms of being a victim. But, you, your suspicions about what happened are probably right. Okay, are probably right, and it's you've just masked over them. But in masking over them, and also, and I said, has your mother ever apologised to you? No, not really. So she's never. The mother has not repented. Do you see? She stopped the the affair and went back to her husband, but she never really repented and never asked for forgiveness and that that combination that's enough that's enough to to really mess with a person's mind okay if they don't face it and don't deal with it but you know in in dealing with this individual and talking through certain things that both practical things that she could do things that that you said, well, as a Christian, you, you know that the, there's no spirits in the jars. Yeah, I know that. So you know that this feeling that you have, this understanding you have, that that's not real. It's something else that's bothering you. 
Because you know that's not real. Yeah, I know that's not real. So there's something else then that's causing you to think about this, which doesn't make sense, but there's something back here that does make sense that maybe it's painful or whatever. Okay? And that's what came up. So, in dealing with this, the, the person got release, okay, in several ways. First of all, they got released because they could, they, they could track it back. They, they could make the connection. Alright? Just knowing, but doing it in a safe way, in a careful way, not going through all that, anything that was harrowing, but just, just making sense of it. Okay? Well, you can see, uh, from that, that would have been very upsetting. You would have buried that. That would have been difficult to deal with and it, it may have, uh, influenced the way that, that, uh, you are with your husband and the way that, that you've interacted and these other things, these other behaviors. And she could see that. Secondly, I said, this person, because she told me he died, this person who perpetrated these things, I said, uh, you can forgive him. You can forgive him. I said, he was a very wicked man. He was an evil man. So he's not going to, and he wasn't going to, about to come to you and ask for your forgiveness. So there was no Luke 17 going on here. If a person comes and say, I repent, you know, you're forgiven. That wasn't going to happen. So in a situation like that, where they're not asking for your forgiveness, they're not repenting, okay, why can you give forgiveness? And I said, it's simple. You can give them forgiveness because God won't forgive them. God won't forgive them. Not unless they've confessed it to him, and if they've confessed it to him, why didn't he come and confess it to you? But God will not forgive them. That sin will be dealt with by God, and probably far more severely than you could ever do it. And justly and righteously. That means you don't have to be governed by this sense of injustice that's been happened to you, that happened to you. Justice will be done on this person. Leave it up to God. The justice, he's in the justice business, you don't need to be. You don't need to let this thing, this awful thing that happened to you, dominate the rest of your life. It doesn't have to. Because God will deal with it. Romans chapter 12. What does, um, what does the apostle say? He says here, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but ra- well, um, do not repay evil for evil, verse 17. Don't repay evil for evil. So yeah, evil's been done to you, but don't do evil back. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. For in doing so, you will heat coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that passage, by the way, about coals of fire on their head, that's not, some, can, some interpreters say that, that had to do with, with people 
having a tray of coals on their head and carrying them. Don't, that's ridiculous. That's interpreting the Bible based on profane history. Rubbish. Okay? It means what it says. And what it says is, you, by allowing God, remember the context? God will have vengeance on him. God will pour coals of fire on his head. You don't have to. But if you obey God, this person's been unjust to you. You have suffered at this person's hand. But if you do good to this person, he's your enemy. But you do good to that person, okay? And that person doesn't repent and goes to the grave, then that's like your good deeds will make their suffering worse. Why? Because it only intensifies the injustice that they've perpetrated against you, that you've been so good to them and that's not led them to repentance. Do you see? To change. So I said, do not overcome, you know, don't, don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. You can go on to do good. Leave the justice to God. This guy, you said he's dead. Guess what? Now he knows all about the fact that God is a consuming fire. You can actually feel pity for him. You've, he's sinned against you badly. But you know what? You're saved. You're saved. He's lost. There's a universe of difference between those two true statements. You can live your life, you can go on with this, without this dominating you. And so that helped her. And, and, you know, was that me? No. This is in the Bible. Do you see? This, there is a, we understand that there, there is a hankering after justice, but guess what? This is a world where injustice abounds. Things that are not fair happen all the time. Fair will happen in the kingdom that we belong to. We're citizens of heaven. We don't worry about injustice in heaven and unfairness in heaven. For eternity, it's not going to be there. So we have a little bit of it down here. Okay? Great, but we're strangers and pilgrims of this world. We're going, to, we're going home. But the people that perpetrate these things, okay, they will face the wrath of God, the justice of God. So listen, listen, listen. And in listening, you see, you, you can see words that they say, negatives and positives, things that don't fit. Also things that are repeated. If they keep repeating something, you think, why do they keep repeating that? Why do they keep coming back to that? Okay, explore that. They may, uh, that might not be something that, that they're aware of, but they maybe keep coming back to that. They'll explore it. Um, listen to whether they accept any specific fault. Okay? Press them to see if they feel guilty for anything. Press them to see if they admit to anything or if it's just general. Well, we all do that. Listen for signs of humility. And that will come across very easily. Or pride. And that shows up a lot. Because you have to deal with that pride. You see? You have to deal with it. Watch. Watch their body language. 
You don't have to be studied in body language. They won't look you in the eye. That's not good. Okay. Some people don't because they're not that. That's they don't use. They're not used to looking people in the eye. Okay. So they can't read too much of that into them. But but uh, generally speaking, try to try to get them to look at you in the eye when they're communicating. Um, if they're wringing their hands, if they're shifting their feet, and so on. Um, if they have a particular way of of uh, um, you know, shifting their weight or so on when they're dealing with an uncomfortable issue. Just notice that. Uh, don't be a superficial thinker. Don't think that the problem, that you've got the problem the first time you hear about it. <laughs> or the first time that you, you hear what they say, you think you've identified the trouble. Okay, be open to, to keep listening. Uh, sometimes you will maybe be given insight into it, sometimes not. Um, I can't go into the awkwardness of change, so I'll just say this about change, okay? They need to change, we need to change, but we don't want to change because what will people think And about our change? You know, we're different. It's like showing up to school with a different haircut, you know? Um, an uncool haircut. Um, it's like you just don't want to do it. You don't want to be looked at that way. And, but people get used to you. And the same thing with changing. If you've been doing something that's wrong, okay, maybe you've been um, ignoring your wife or whatever that might be, and all of a sudden you change and you start giving her attention, she might think, what's wrong with you? Yes? But she'll get used to it if you keep doing it. Do you see? So don't worry about change. People, yeah, it's weird at first, but then people get used to it. All right, they actually kind of like it. And then um, one other thing, finally, it's the last thing I'm going to say here, and this is just a personal thing, and it has to do with intuition. Intuition, okay, or feeling in the gut. And I want to qualify what I'm going to say just by just be saying, just saying that, that, that this has got something to do with discernment. And in Hebrews chapter 5, if you're not in the Bible and you don't care for doctrine, you can't, don't care for truth, you're just using the Bible for, you know, your feel-good feelings, then you can't trust your intuition very much in the spiritual realm. You can't. Because you, you, your senses aren't exercised to discern good and evil. But if you're in the Bible and you're serving God, if you there's something about a person that doesn't quite, don't know, you can't put your finger on it, there's something that doesn't match up, then don't ignore it. Don't ignore it. Okay? The, the whole mock idea of Christian charity is to overlook that because you're a Christian and we're all failed and we're all bad and so on, so let's just overlook that. Don't ignore it. Uh, now, don't, you don't um, cast aspersions, don't think uh, terrible thoughts about that person, because it may be that when you talk about them more, they actually say something that throws light on that very thing that you thought was odd, and you think, oh, okay, it's not odd at all. But sometimes there's something like that. Some women 
for example, don't like to be in the same room with certain men. And they don't know why, just that that person, he just makes me feel creepy. Okay? Okay? Don't ignore it. That person may not have touched a fly, okay? But there might be something in their character or something that's wrong, something there. Don't ignore it. Um, same guys with, with women or um, just with, with people that, that, that uh, maybe they come across, that they're just too good, they're too godly. You know, their, their, their speech is so measured and so, um, they just seem to ooze spirituality. You know, be careful sometimes, okay? The angel of light stuff. <laughs> Why do I say that? I say that because in my experience, okay, some of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life is because I didn't go with my intuition. I knew there was something wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew, and this person proved it. And I've had that again and again and again and again. Okay? So don't go into commitments with those people that you feel isn't, you know, there's something there, I'm not sure what it is. Don't commit yourself with, to those people. And um, um, I am usually, not always, but I'm usually right. When I have those feelings about somebody, oh, there's something not quite right there, I'm usually right. I'm, I am. I'm not, I don't saying that for pride. I, out of pride, it's probably because of uh, knowledge of this and just interactions with people um, but I'm usually right and so just a word of warning to end with there that um, it doesn't mean this person you don't you're not um, you, sh- you shouldn't think bad thoughts about this person and try and um, uh, wonder what it is about them, but just if it makes you, if that person makes you feel uneasy, then there's almost certainly something to it. Okay. So thank you, thank you for all of your time. Thank you for uh, listening and and being part of this course. I hope it's been very helpful and constructive. One of the things I wanted it to do also is not just give you a bunch of information, but also help you. I mean, just just edify people too and I hope that it did that any final question before we close yes two so go on so yes go on for marriage problems well, uh, Wayne Mack's uh, books on marriage are very good. Wayne Mack. Yeah, M-A-C-K. And I think Love and Respect by Emerson Egerich is, is pretty good. You know, one of the things, I, I read that book thinking I'd hate it. Okay, and thinking it would be easy solutions to things. But one of the things, if you look at his footnotes or his end notes, it's obvious that he's thought about stuff. 
So yes, he uses psychological language, but you can tell that he's not relying on that. He's relying on the Bible. Okay, which, yeah, he's one of the rare people. He, he really does rely on scripture. So often when you think there's something wrong here, if you look at a footnote or an endnote, he'll go and explain it at the back and say, I know that this, for example, there is this issue or that issue and the scripture says this about it. So he, it's like you can trust a lot of what he says. Emerson Egerich. E-G-G-E-R-I-C-K-C-H. Love and respect. I think that's a pretty good manual. It's an easy one to use as well. Uh, it's an easy one to use, an easy one to read. Uh, another, um, this is one of those kind of smiley, uh, everything, you know, everything can be wonderful, everything can be fantastic kind of books, so I hate them normally. But, um, Shaunti Feldhahn, I wouldn't recommend a lot of her stuff. She's a very smart woman, but I just don't like the way she writes. But Shaunti Feldhahn and her husband have, have written books from a woman's perspective and a man's perspective. They're short, and they're actually pretty insightful. And what's really good about those two books is that, for, for example, uh, she writes the book for men, and he writes, is that right? I think so, something like that. Anyway, if, if, if you read the book that she writes, um, she will say that, look, for women, we're like this, okay? You need to understand men are not like that. So she tells women, men are not like that. You want to talk, they don't want to talk. Okay, you have, she, she likens it to pop-up windows on um, in a computer. You have all these windows open, okay, these things that, you, that you're dealing with on your computer. Okay, they're not like that, okay. They have one or two windows open, things that they're dealing with, that's it, okay. So don't expect them to be like you, they're not like you. So don't complain when they're not like you and it's vice versa as well. If the woman wants to talk, guy, and you don't want to talk, realize uh, men communicate in a very different way than women communicate. With men, you know, we tend to just say what we need to say and that's it. We, and we kind of, that's, we leave it. Okay? And there's places that you don't, things you don't talk about. Yeah? But with women, they want to talk about everything. And, um, and their emotions and, and so on. Guys don't often want to talk about their emotions. They might talk about their emotions about shooting something or, you know, uh, um, feeling sorry for a certain person or whatever, but they're not going to, they're not going to kind of go deep about that stuff. But, but women want to talk about that and to their husbands, the husbands need to realize that, yeah, I need to, uh, Take some time here, be a bit patient, and let them um, just talk talk it through. So those two books by Shaunti Feldhahn and her husband are useful too. There's a, a bunch more. Um, um, Tripp's book is pretty good. Uh, what did you expect? And his War of Words is pretty good too. His book What Did You Expect is is good. There's quite a few out there. There's a lot of bad books, bad, bad marriage books out there. 
So, but if they're a biblical counselor, then normally their books are, uh, are fairly good. Most, see, I need, I need to shut up, but, but um, 80% of marriage books are rubbish. But there are 20% that are really good. Okay? Um, even some of those Ed Wheat books, those old, older ones, uh, can be pretty good too. You know, they tend to be a bit smiley and everything's great, but, but uh, they actually do deal with some important biblical issues. So, yeah.